Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I will be your host for today's program, New Business Har- Paradigms, excuse me, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as most of you know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. Um, if you want to contact us at any point or look at our website, that is at www.worldbusiness.org. And if you'd like to send an email, send it to info, I-N-F-O, at worldbusiness.org. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad and ranging topics, along with our lightning round. Uh, occasionally, we do have questions that come in from our audience. Uh, some of these we've sort of digested and, and reshuffled as to how we'll announce them, but we will get to them in today's show. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. And today, our focus is going to be on, first, the President's State of the Union address and how the issues he raised may impact the economy, including, first, the possibility or not of the sequester, these automatic budget cuts taking place in early March, two, whether or not we will invest in infrastructure, and three, the fiscal impacts of these plans on climate change. Uh, We also will be talking today with Richard Eidlin, Director of Public Policy and Business Engagement of the American Sustainable Business Council. Richard will provide us with a view from the ground in Washington, D.C., where the battles over the future of sustainable policy and business regulations continue to rage. We'll also be doing our lightning round today, a series of quick insights and comments comments, on various asset classes such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, with a particular note today on our favorite topics, gold, housing, and oil. Ronaldo, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present to our members and to our listeners concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious business practices to business and society. Can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails in today's world? Ronaldo. Thank you, Howard, and thank you, everyone, for joining us again this this month. It's great to be able to do this and keep going month after month. We're in our, our third year now, and, uh, and this is the beginning of our fourth year. Beginning of the fourth year, yeah, we complete our third year. Uh, and, and while so, we're at it, let's wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day as well. Oh, let's do that. Uh, the, this is uh, the this is the day for all of us to experience our heart centered love for each other in every single aspect of our lives, not just in the Part of it we think of as romantic love, but maybe even the part called agape. Can we love each other as a society, and can we love everyone on the planet as part of the human family? And I think that's really a great point of departure for the President's State of the Union remarks two nights ago. Um, I think that uh, although there were people in the progressive side of the the political spectrum who found fault with a couple things in the speech, one of them I would say would be the somewhat tepid suggestion of a commission to look into voter fraud, when in fact it appeared from the the, um, the inaugural that the president was going to move much more strongly on on the voter writing act voter right access. I think that the real issue that I want to focus on today is the clarity of the plan that basically Obama put out there for what looks to me like the next four years. And the clarity is about creating the reinvigorated middle class in America. The clarity is about balancing equities in an irrational fashion. It's about closing loopholes like the billions that go to subsidize, the $16 billion that goes to subsidize big oil, which is an egregiously uh, profitable industry, an industry so profitable it raises questions as to its legitimacy. Um, and, so I, and I think that what we really need to focus on is the political intractability in Washington and what I think the president's saying about that, which is, we're entitled to a vote. You don't like gun. You don't want to have background checks. Okay, but at least vote, and we'll know where you stand. Uh, I think this issue of let's have votes is going to be a main theme for the next year. And the reason is simply this: the real issue in the president's remarks is nothing the president said. It's what's going on in the Republican Party. What the president said finally is an agenda that really reflects a progressive agenda that is good for America, good for the economy, and good for the global economy. The real challenge is that in the Republican Party you have a very far-right group, who uh, the Tea Party, 
who are at now in an invisible, overt conflict with the forces of the traditional economic interests of the Republican Party, represented now by Karl Rove. And, and the idea is, what will come out of that conflict? Will it be a Republican Party where they will lose their solidarity and they will permit votes to happen, meaning that some Republicans will actually do the rational thing? Or will it be a situation where we have the blockage that we saw for the last uh, two years of the first Obama administration? And I think this first comes up most classically in the sequester. So I want to make some. I want to renew a prediction I made last November. I'm now convinced it was correct then, and I'm going to update it. I said, if there were no sequester, you would see growth at two and a half to three percent or better by the fourth quarter of this year, 2013. What's clear to me is that there's a better than even chance that the sequester is going to happen, and I'm looking forward to asking our guest in a few, in a few minutes whether he thinks it's going to happen. But increasingly, I see the sequester as very possible to occur. If that's so, I think it's going to take at least one to one and a half points off of my GDP growth projection. So as I said then, if there were no sequester, this is what you'd see. Well, if there is a sequester, I think you're going to see one and a half percent loss of GDP growth, leaving one to one and a half percent intact, which is a very nice thing because if we have a sequester, I believe we'll absorb the worst of it within six to nine months. It will be, be behind us once and for all, and we'll be going into 2014 where it's clear what the electoral issues will be for the Congress. So I don't think it's necessarily that the Democrats would have the worst possible hand dealt to them if, in fact, the Republicans play hardball on the sequester. Now, clearly, a million people are going to lose their jobs or more when it hits. Whether or not that's enough to take and destabilize the economy, I've now decided it's not enough to take us back into a double dip. So it's something we will have to swallow, but the good news is if they take their best shot, which really is shooting the American economy in the feet voluntarily, which is exactly what the president was highlighting, stop bringing on these artificial crises that are self-inflicted. Even if we self-inflict another crisis, this one, I believe, we can survive. And when it's over, we'll be restabilized with a much lower military budget that we might not get to any other way, and with numerous ways to improve the domestic side spending because in, in the in departments that I looked at where it would hit, hurt the worst, like, for example, Medicare, I believe we can make up most, if not all, of that cut by going from the prices we pay on drugs, 140% of what everybody else pays, just down to 100% of what everybody else pays. And that alone, we calculated here, it's a $52 billion a year drug bill. That alone would restore at least, at least um, two to tw somewhere in the $20 billion range. So I'm looking at being able to restore more money to Medicare spending by getting a fair drug purchasing agreement than I am seeing as a loss to the whole system. And I, I've gone through each department of government that way. I've looked at the EPA, I've looked at the SEC, looked at the Justice Department. And as bad as the sequester is, and I don't think it should happen, it's crazy to do it, I believe it's survivable. And that means I'm not going to pull back on my initial recommendation last November that it's okay to buy equity. I'll talk about it some more in other classes of investment in, in when we talk about our assets classes later in the program, but I wanted to just touch on that because I think the sequester is this giant thing hanging over everybody, and I think that its biggest negative impact will be on consumer confidence, which it's already doing. From that, it's a survivable six- to nine-month crunch. At the end of that crunch, I think we're well-positioned for the fourth quarter and then the beginning of 2014. That's what I expect to see, but I must tell you, there's a whole bunch of people now, smart people, who are starting to rethink whether they want to be heavily involved in the equity markets. Some of them, even Warren Buffett, has readjusted his portfolio to get out of things like Intel completely and to reduce his exposure in the number of consumer products companies, although he did recently just buy into Heinz, which would indicate he's playing both parts of the consumer product marketplace. I'm, I say these things because I think we should all look for questions from you next week, next month rather. I'd like you to phone in and send in some questions. What will happen to my blank, fill in the blank, now that we know the sequester did or did not go through? So next month's show is going to be critical. And if you have any ideas that you want to talk more about this after you hear the rest of the show today about the short-term implications, please don't hesitate to write us about it. So, so Howard, let's let's transition yeah. from that right. to I get some advice from our expert. Right. I just want to add one thing, that regardless of what actually happens in March, I think the rhetoric that you're going to be hearing in the news is going to be overwhelming um, and hyped up enormously 
and just be prepared for that. And try, as you listen to the news, try to filter through it on your own to sort of get a sense of what is really being said here. Is it just fear being mongered about easily, or are we truly, uh, you know, dealing with some serious issues? Anyway, with that, let me introduce Richard and bring him on. Um, and first of all, you wanted to mention something about your involvement. Uh, should we do that first? Yeah. Well, let me just, before we invite Richard, we're going to introduce him in a second, uh, I want to declare a potential conflict in the interest of 100% transparency. I actually am the chief executive officer of a company, and a, and a company that's a big supporter, frankly, of the American Sustainability Council. So uh, I am both a fan of what Richard's doing and a participant in it, so you need to know that that does color, in one sense, my views. On the other hand, I want to say that the reason I joined ASBC is because I saw a tremendous need, particularly for small businesses, and I saw this organization step up to the bat and fill it, and that's what encouraged me to join the American Sustainable Business Council, because I saw it as an opportunity to serve, as we do in the academy, the broader extremes of how we can help small business, particularly, take responsibility for the whole of society. How can we change commerce? So I'm Thank grateful you. to be that a member, and I'm glad to, and I'm proud of it, but I wanted to declare it. Go ahead, uh, Howard. Thank you. Uh, let me just give you Richard's background. He, Richard Eidlin is the Public Policy Director at the American Sustainable Business Council. He has worked for over 25 years on sustainable business and policy issues in the public and private sector, sustainability, social entrepreneurship, and corporate social responsibility have been his primary focus. He's consulted to the UN Environmental Program and worked in the U.S. solar energy industry. He was business outreach director for the Apollo Alliance and has worked heavily on clean technology uh, for both the Obama campaign and other agencies. With that, Richard, you're on the air, and uh, welcome to today's show. Good. Good. Thank you, Howard and Ronaldo. Great to be with you, too, and, and happy Valentine's Day to everybody. Thank you as well, and welcome. So, Richard, um, I saw. Uh, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about ASBC before we launch? And I, I got a couple of questions I'm going to toss out at you. Yeah, absolutely, Ronaldo. So, the American Sustainable Business Council was formed in June of 2009 in an effort to aggregate the voice of sustainably minded or triple bottom line, socially responsible types of companies across the country who hadn't really participated in the policy process to the extent that they could have. And when we formed the council, which has now grown to represent over 165,000 companies across the country, we started with the premise that traditional business organizations, groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, while having a point of view, were clearly not representing the growing trend of sustainably-minded, social responsible companies uh, in the country. And we felt that policymakers and the media needed to understand that this trend uh, was, in fact, uh, very real and producing very real gains for companies. And we've been working over the past several years to make the business case in Washington, D.C. and state capitals on a whole range of policy issues that we can touch on here in a moment. Great. Well, I, I appreciate that background because, as I said in my uh, brief disclaimer, uh, I joined the ASBC because I thought it was completely synonymous with the values of the World Business Academy, and I was delighted that you guys basically got involved, particularly as most people who listen to our show probably know. Um, the business roundtable and, and, frankly, the, the, the most of the major business institutions in the United States uh, really represent about 30 to 50 companies. Uh, even when you hear that they have three or four hundred, three thousand or four thousand members, though thirty to forty at the top are the ones who tend to control that agenda, and those are the members who you would expect are the large global straddling companies, oil companies and others, who have this enormous amount of influence. And I find your group, Richard, to be that independent voice of sanity in in a, in a crazy marketplace. Richard, can, let me ask a question: that in terms of specific policy issues, I mean, what is something? that the council is working on right now and that you see is really critical uh, to moving these policies forward? Yeah, well, we're, we're working, Howard, on a range of issues, and specifically, I'll set a few examples. One is our work, work on tax reform. So we've been working with Senator Levin, Carl Levin from Michigan and others on uh, addressing corporate tax loopholes and offshoring of capital and other benefits that the largest multinationals 
take advantage of. Uh, it's all legal. But we feel that in an era where we need to generate more revenue and minimize the pain that particularly small businesses are facing, that we need to really craft a different approach to tax strategy in this country and that the existence of these loopholes and tax havens and deductions that the largest companies are able to take advantage of is really skewing the uh, the outcome. So tax reform is a big issue we work on. We've also have been very active in health care and working on the Affordable Care Act, feeling that the existence of that program and the launch of it in January of 2014 is going to be a really good thing for particularly small businesses. And another example would be our work on campaign finance reform, and we can talk about that further, but, you know, money is the milk of politics, and um, unlimited amounts of cash going into the political system, we think, really distorts the outcome and gives a very undue and uh, imbalanced advantage to, again, the nation's largest companies. Well, and, you know, I'm looking, uh, Richard, at a, um, I think it's a press release of yours. No, it's an article. Yeah, it's an article, a press release, in which mm -hmm. um, you talked about um, the things you thought Obama did right in the State of the Union address. But then you went on to say um, that uh, but there was, there, was, there was a whole series of things that didn't happen. And you, I'm going to quote you. Government must provide a firm hand to restructure those markets where competition is no longer effective due to unpriced externalities, regulatory capture, capturing the agency that regulates you, and oligopolistic structures that suppress true competition. Fossil fuels, banking, defense, residential broadband, and agriculture are five examples. Now, right. I happen to agree with all of that, but it, now address that in the context of the political, what we seem to have in, in the political situation in Washington. What can this president do on any of them? Right. Well, as, as you read, uh, Ronaldo, you know, one of our primary concerns is that the cost of doing the right thing, of being a sustainably oriented company, environmentally um, environmentally minded, community engaged, that there are some economic disincentives to do that because the system is in some sense skewed towards supporting um, unsustainable business practices. And that comes through the form of subsidies and externalities and a whole series of hidden costs. So, you know, an example of that just quickly is the Farm Bill, where crop insurance continues to cost taxpayers $15 billion a year, but there are no environmental requirements for the issuance of crop insurance, which tends to benefit commodity manufacturers and commodity producers of farm crop. Um, oil subsidies are, are clearly another. Uh, direct payments to agribusiness are another. And we think these all really skew the economic uh, dynamic in this country. What the president can do is continue to advocate for more transparency. Uh, OMB could develop a set of regular office of management budget, could develop a different set of criteria by which federal rules are assessed. SBA could create a different set of criteria that factor in sustainable business practices. There's a lot that the executive office can do, but again, much of this rests on what Congress is willing to do and whose interests those in Congress see themselves as responsible for serving. Richard, let me let me interrupt for a second and ask you a question about that. Given the nature of the last 112th Congress and it hasn't really changed. We have the same basic people in charge. And added to that fact that the Senate gave up the opportunity to change the filibuster rules. So right, right now we have the embarrassing situation of a cabinet appointee being held up by a potential uh, filibuster on the Senate floor, which just seems to me absurd. How do you think we can get any of these progressive legislation or appropriate legislation that you advocate get that through a Congress that is really about saying no um, and is not interested in doing anything. Yeah. Well, Howard, we, we think one of the most important strategies is for progressive, sustainable companies to actually participate in the process. And that's what the American Sustainable Business Council is really all about. And we know from experience that when business people show up in Washington, D.C., or, or your state capital, that legislators really have to listen because – 
companies large and small alike are creating jobs, and those that are creating the most jobs in the United States are actually small companies. So the importance of companies and executives actually showing up um, and expressing their view is, is critical. We've had a number of really eye-opening experiences in D.C., in Washington, D.C., where legislators, um, you know, particularly conservative legislators, sort of look across the table after they've been hearing an executive talk about how profitable his or her company is, and they've been doing that by investing in their workforce, by paying a livable or much better wage, by creating uh, an employee stock-owned plan, by investing in new technology and environmental stewardship, and they kind of look across the table and go, well, but I thought you were a business leader. So there is a sort of theory uh, that is inaccurate that business people are all uh, you know, looking for the least amount of taxes to pay, the least amount of regulation to comply with, and we're making a case that the economy is actually better off with a more equitable tax system, with smarter regulations. Um, and when we By get the way, I just, Richard, I also yeah. was pleased that you came out in favor of a $9 minimum wage, which I would, I thought the president was absolutely accurate about that. And I think it's your position that, yes, it increases the employer's cost conceivably, but it also brings right. more money into the system, so the, the increase in the economic activity will more than right. make up for any inconvenience. Is that right? That is exactly right. And, and uh, there's a story in the New York Times today that talks about, um, you know, concerns of small business. And what we have found in not only a national public opinion poll we did of small business, but in many, many other forums, that uh, regulation is not the onerous burden uh, for many small businesses that some contend, but that, in fact, the lack of consumer demand by suppressed wages um, is really what's keeping many small businesses and business people uh, cautious. So, we oh, that, Richard, that's exactly what the Academy's research shows as well. Right, right. And so we, you know, we've been we've been making that case. Um, to go back to Howard's question about you know how else to change the dynamic, um, we also know that you know I, I that Congress has changed uh, the Tea Party as a smaller caucus now than they did uh, two months ago. There are more, we think, reasonable people in the U.S. Senate. There are a number of independents. Angus King from Maine is one of those. And so we think there's a, more of an opportunity for some collaboration. You know, we're not starry-eyed about uh, the president's agenda being uh, adopted in a wholesale way. But do think that there's a recognition, I think, as we saw with the fiscal cliff negotiations, that the wealthiest Americans can afford to pay a bit more tax. And with that accomplishment, we think there may be an opportunity, although you know, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on this, but maybe an opportunity for there to be some reform on offshoring of capital and tax havens. Right, and, and this, I just want to touch on one other thing that you're in favor of that the Academy also has done a lot of research on, and that's uh, you're very supportive of the infrastructure projects, that that creates localized jobs in America and, and then also adds to consumer demand. Absolutely, and we think the president really hit it on the, you know, on the head when he talked about the decaying infrastructure and, and the consequently the lack of ability to compete with the Japanese, with the Germans, with other countries that are investing in their public uh, infrastructure. So we think that 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 improvements can be made and can be useful in hiring people. You know, we always have to be concerned about making sure these projects aren't boondoggles and wasteful. But there's a lot that can be done in public-private sector partnerships. And we think that there should be federal investment in these projects. Now that, that leads me to one specific project, cause I, and I know you want to plug this, because on February 17th, you're asking people to join you on the Washington, at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., to protest the Keystone XL pipeline. Now, that's an infrastructure project. Uh, why don't you? I know. I, I know why I'm against the XL pipeline. I'd like to know what your position is, Richard. Yeah. Well, with the with the Keystone XL pipeline, we it don't think it's a very large infrastructure project, which, as your listeners may know, will come from Canada all the way into Texas. 
uh, and into the Gulf, and will bring uh, tar sands, uh, which will become, uh, which will be liquefied and become power, become uh, electricity. Um, you know, miles down the road, we don't think that is a very prudent economic investment. We've made the case that a project like that wouldn't really be economic if it wasn't, uh, if it didn't have the federal subsidies and the federal government and taxpayers absorbing the liability. And that this is not a project that we think is a wise use of federal dollars. Um, you know, we see sort of a similar parallel or analogy to nuclear energy where, you know, no plant would have been built without government shouldering the legal liability and the insurance. So uh, the Excel pipeline is a, a project that we, you know, we, we know will produce some jobs, but we feel that the numbers that are projected by its proponents are exaggerated, and these are short-term jobs. So we think instead, Ronaldo, that it's harder to invest in long-term renewable energy capacity in this country and also to focus on energy efficiency, which obviously will save us a lot of money and also create a lot of jobs. Well, I, the, I agree. It's more, the, but, I'm sorry. I was going to ask, is the pipeline even necessary for energy needs, or is it simply something that's going to end up supporting uh, the profits of the oil industry down the road? Well, twofold. One is the project, um, part, a, a large portion of the energy produced will actually be shipped offshore. There are customers in Asia who are looking forward to this energy. Uh, a lot of this won't actually be used domestically. And we, you know, it also kind of raises the question, Howard, about fracking, hydraulic fracking, and you know, it connects to where will America get its energy from? Before, before, before you go there, though, yeah. Richard, I just want to, I want to just bracket what you said because I want to make sure people understand what you're saying. Yeah. The, the, the Keystone Pipeline, just so folks know, is an attempt to get tremendously increased volumes of oil more economically to the refiners, the refineries, the American refineries on the Gulf Coast, which, by the way, are all subject to disturbance from climate change. It's quite amazing. 27 refineries are down there. But the idea is to take and put these huge quantities of oil so they can increase the tar sands project in Canada, move it down to the refineries that the oil companies own in the Gulf, and then ship it offshore to China. In other words, people need to know that the XL pipeline is not designed to bring more imported oil to America from a safe partner called Canada. It's designed to feed refineries for offshore shipments to Asia. That's real important that people know that. And given the location of where the oil sands are, if I was just simply plotting, wouldn't it make more sense to ship it to a port on the Canadian West Coast and have it refined there and shipped out and never touch the United States? But they um, don't have refiner capacity now. Right. Exactly. So, so it's a terrible environmental decision which doesn't create a significant number of jobs, and the number it creates for less money you could more than double if you put it into renewable energy, which is Richard's point. And, and, and I want to point out that, Richard, in, in adding to your comment, you represent 300,000 entrepreneurs and executives and managers. It, it's, not, it's not like there's, a, there's like three of us in this club. Right. You're, you're, you're giving practical business insight to how you would run the, the economy if, in fact, it was an even playing field. Exactly, and... You know, to go back to your question about how do you effectuate change, change uh, when we're talking to policymakers and the media, you know, we bring the business case to the table, and we're you know is equally concerned about environmental and social justice and public health issues, and we lead with the business case that uh, this is not something we would do in our business. We don't think this these set of externalities is justifiable. Uh, this is not something that would show up as a net gain on our P&L, and that if we really did full-cost accounting on XL Pipeline or some of these other uh, initiatives, we would have a hard time justifying this to our shareholders. And that's the case we keep returning to, Ronaldo. Yeah, I think that's great. And I know we're running out of time. I just wanted to make sure that people knew two things. I want to recommend to every single listener, check out, the American Sustainable Business Council. It's a way for you to have a voice and a vote in how to rationalize our economy so we can all do better. 
Richard, what uh, is and, your, and what that is, your... is ASBC. Oh, so it's ASBC, it's ASBcouncil.org. ASBCOUNCIL.org. So ASBcouncil.org is the website. And I urge you to go, and, and I believe you put out free publications, if I'm not mistaken, Richard. Yeah, we have, if I can just briefly explain, we have two types of members. We have organizations, business organizations across the country. There are about 63, 64 of those. Uh, World Business Academy is a through Seven Oaks is a business supporter. And then we have a number, we have dozens of individual companies like Patagonia and Dansko and Ben and & Jerry's and Seventh Generation, Eileen Fisher, that join as individual companies. So we are always looking for more businesses to collaborate with and bring them to Washington, engage them in the process. I assume REI is a member, are they? REI is not a member, uh, but uh, Sally Jewell, their former CEO and soon-to-be, I think, Department of Interior Secretary, uh, will have to talk to her predecessor or her, uh, her successor. The, I, I know Sally, right, so I, 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 yes. I was wondering. Okay, now I want also want to plug, plug one other thing, very so we don't lose this opportunity. We've ri- we've spoken extensively on this show since before the Citizens United decision about how bad it would be if it came down the way it did. And I want to just alert people to your Business for Democracy campaign. Just take a couple of seconds to talk about that, if you would. Yeah, yeah. Well, when that decision was made by Supreme Court several years ago, I think two years ago and, and counting, we felt that the equating corporations and unlimited cap, financial expenditures with free speech was just a really wrong-headed decision. And so we've been working both at the federal level and the state level, different states across the country, to promote uh, campaign finance reform. So at the federal level, we're working to overturn Citizens United. We're working on a number of other actions, called including the Disclose Act, working on limiting the amount of money that companies and unions can contribute. And at the state level, there are a whole series of initiatives uh, that we're promoting. And the real focus here is we think that unlimited expenditures uh, – both by companies and by uh, by 527s and PACs and dark money, as it's called, is really distortive and has a negative impact on the political process. Um, so we have a campaign called Business for Democracy that we started with act support from Ben & Jerry's a few years ago. You can find that on our website, www.asbcouncil.org. And we have several thousand companies that have signed on to that campaign. We periodically have webinars and informative meetings and keeping companies and company executives informed about how they can weigh in on that critical issue. Well, I really want to thank you for joining us today, Richard. I I couldn't more strongly advise and urge people to check your organization out at asbcouncil.org. Consider joining. I did before long before this interview happened and only after I did my research on how closely your goals and strategies track those of the Academy for the last 26 years. So I'm really glad to have you out there representing us. I also want to point out to people in small business, ASBC is the best shot you've got to have your voice at the table, particularly at a time when uh, capital is increasingly difficult for small business to obtain, um, when there are these uh, these huge oligopolies and these regulated industries that are extracting from all of us an unfair burden. Equalizing the playing field is now more important than ever. Help yourself by helping others get a rational economy that really does support small business. And thank you, Richard, for joining us. Right. Richard, yes, I have one last, one last question Please. before yes. we leave you, and that yes. is simply this. We're fond of giving our listeners uh, what we call a call to action. Is there something specific relative to your counsel that the average listener can do um, that would help? Yeah, thanks for asking, Howard. We're going to be launching very soon another effort to increase the federal minimum wage, as the president called for, and on our website there will be a sign-on letter. So we'd love to have people visit the website and sign on, and we'll then follow up with them. There's also another quick item I'll mention, and that is reform of the Toxic Substances Control Act, which regulates chemicals in the economy. We've been working with Senator Frank Lautenberg from New Jersey for about two years now, 
And that's an area where we think new jobs can be created by regulating chemicals, and we need uh, more companies to show up and advocate on behalf of the reform. So we're very much a action-oriented group. This is not a think tank. This is really an advocacy organization. And, again, having business leaders like Ronaldo, like yourself, Howard, involved is the secret sauce. And as we say, you know, if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu, and we think <laughs> it's a much better idea to be at the table. Richard, Richard, on that, thank you very much. We appreciate the time you've spent uh, talking to our guests and our uh, listeners. And with that, Ronaldo, it's time for us to move on to our next segment. And again, Richard, thank you very much. Yes, Hope to hear from you again in the future. Okay, thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, Ronaldo, it's time now for our lightning round, uh, which, as always, is a quick series of insights or a series of quick insights onto various asset classes. And again, one of the emphases that we're trying to get across is that, as Ronaldo is fond of saying, these are ideas you can actually implement um, and possibly actually increase your earnings. So, with that, Ronaldo, take it away. Yeah, I, in fact, I, I want people to do well financially because they listen to this show, Howard. I, I, mean, I love the fact that I get people tell me, I mean, I stop me at cocktail parties or occasional phone calls, and they'll tell me how, how well they've done financially for themselves by just listening to the show. And I really hope that you'll tell your friends, uh, you know, our goal is to keep reaching out to more and more like-minded people. I know there's tens of millions of us. Let's talk to each other. Let's help each other get through these challenging times. Let's learn how to make more money for ourselves, being smart investors, and let's do it in a way that protects our nest egg as we get, as I am, uh, further and closer to retirement. Right. I have um, to do my quick disclaimer. Even though I am an advisor with Morgan Stanley, these are not Morgan Stanley recommendations, and I am not specifically recommending any of these things for any specific individual. In uh, fact, I'm proud note, of the fact that Howard and I often disagree. <laughs> so right. this, is, this, is, this is just the World Business Academy view. View uh, and, not, all, and not Morgan Stanley's. Yes. And not Morgan Stanley. So here's what I want to point out. First of all, um, we did something in last November where we said we think it's time to be it's safe to go back into the equity market and bond market. And I specifically even said I think uh, general obligation bonds of Cal- places like California, uh, as opposed to the federal bonds where the interest rates are very very low. Um, I, I, bonds I'm holding off on now. If you're in it, great. If you're not, hold tight for a while because I see some. Ter- perturbations coming in the next couple of months when we see what's going to happen with the sequester. Yeah. And but let, me, I want... let me clarify a p- p- thing on bonds that I think people need to understand, that people who are holding bonds to maturity may see a dip, if, if rates do rise down the road a couple of years from now, in the value of those bonds. However, the cash flow that those bonds are kicking off does not change. And if you hold it to maturity you do not have a dangerous risk, so to speak, of, of losing money. You're going to still get your, your principal back uh, as well as the interest. It's people who panic when the prices dip and start to sell. You're very much at risk of losing money. And again, back in 2008, a lot of people sold everything ignorantly and unfortunately, uh, not really aware that certain things were actually well worth buying at that point in time, not selling. Um, and smart money often went the other way. Well, I, I, but I, I do want to caveat that just slightly with, if you think that there is a major bond price correction potentially coming, selling the bond today before that correction happens will save you the value of the capital value of the bond. You won't continue to get the interest on that bond, but you will have preserved your position if you did well. And I've done well in the bond, as you know, Howard. Um, it's nice to sometimes take a little off the table to be safe. So I'm, where, I, where I'm coming out on bonds is if you're in them, great. Like I'm in, still in Brazilian industrial development. Bonds are still paying me very high rates of interest. The real's up to 51 today. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to stay with it. But I, what I'm saying is if you're not in them yet, hold your fire till we see what happens with the sequester. Exactly. Now, with regard to equities, however, when uh, we made that call last November, I said to, on this show, I've, I've decided to buy the S&P 500 index. And, uh, Howard, I think you, um, last November, what, did, what, what, what was it at that day? We were approximately we... 136, 135 on the S&P ETF, which translates to approximately 1360 on the S&P index itself. It's multi-factor okay, so, 10. And so if you, if you did that, and where is it today? 
and today we're approximately at 520. So we're at about a what about a 16, about a 12 percent gain. 12 percent. We've had a 12% gain on that one investment that we told you is perfectly safe and you could make. I'm going to con- I want to flag for folks that there is a very, very interesting, and I've alluded to it in my opening remarks, there's an interesting breakdown happening, and and some people, very smart people, are becoming less inclined to hold equities. I think they are wrong still. And I want to tie it back to my opening remarks on the sequester. If the sequester happens, there could be some panic selling and some short-term, I mean two, three-month disequilibrium. But my fundamental belief is that the economy will continue to grow despite the sequester, at half the rate, and once it gets the sequester behind it by the fourth quarter, we'll be poised to do much much higher significant growth in uh, 2014. So I don't see a collapse in equity. I also, for that reason, the sequester might happen. I don't see inflation as a real threat or concern at this time. So for that, I'm also going to say, if you've got gold, I think I'm going to sell some gold today. And the reason I'm going to sell it is if I'm right and it continues to go sideways, I will have taken my money off the table one more time. And it's been going sideways for a very, very long time at this point. If it looks like the sequester is going to happen, and it does, I feel that could be a depressive effect on gold in the medium to long term. And so I'm going to get out of gold right now, and I'm going to watch what happens in Washington. And if it looks like that's imprudent that I should get back into gold, which I'll know come March, I'll be, you'll, be, you'll hear it first on this program. So we will cover gold, but I'm going to take my profits off the table now at the 1650 or whatever we're at on gold today. And I'm going to say I think the downside potential to that investment is now greater than the likelihood of sideways or up. And we'll see if I'm right or not. But as to equities, I feel very comfortable that call in November was correct, and I believe that equities will continue up even if we have a blip over the sequester actually happening. Right, and I'd like to repeat something I mentioned earlier in this show, that we'll get, there's going to be a lot of rhetoric in the media, back and forth, about the sequester, and it's going to be a lot more dramatic than whatever the actual final outcome comes. And one of the things people need to remember about their investments in general, I think is a very critical point, is time frame. If you are a long-term investor and have sufficient short-term capital to cover your needs, then you can ride out volatility. If, on the other hand, you're putting your short-term money, the money that's paying your mortgage or paying your bills, into the stock market, one, that's a, a mistake in general. Two, you're going to be nervous as can be because it's going to bounce around a lot. And that's something I never advocate people doing is trying to make a short-term gain with money they also need for their other expenses. Segregate your money into different pools, short, middle, long-term. And in each pool, you do completely different things. And most of these long-term strategies that we're talking about is, in fact, your long-term money, not your cash on hand and not your emergency reserves. So really pay attention to that when you're planning your own investments. Now, I want to go to one other point, which is I want people to focus, because I think you're going to hear a lot of chatter, misleading chatter, on cable TV stations particularly, and on the network news and CNN. What you're going to hear, I think, is some misinformation about the effects of the sequester on housing. So let me go on record. The housing recovery, which started, as you know, by listening to this program last year, when we called the bottom of the housing market, will continue, even with a sequester, housing will continue to rise. That's really critical to know because, again, there could be a two- or three-month destabilizing period right after the sequester. But certainly within six months, the effects of that will have worn off relative to housing. And housing is is going to continue to be there for this nice power sector contributing two ways to the economy. Not only is it creating more jobs, construction jobs, et cetera, but it's also creating more confidence in the consumers as they see the value of their house on average go up. So it's now becoming something, okay, I can take a deep breath. I'm not going to lose my house. The equity in my house is growing. It's not going down. And now I just have to focus on, okay, how do I want to handle my cash flow? So it's very important that you see the housing market will continue to rise in the balance of this year, even if we have a two- to three-month blip over the sequester. I want to cover one asset, another asset class. I believe that people will continue to buy automobiles. 
Uh, again, two to three months blip if you have the sequester, but by the fourth quarter, we'll, the pattern will be clearly reestablished. I think there's a lot of replacement stock issues. I think the rising price of oil, which I know Howard's going to talk about in a second, all those things have been driving sales. Now, I don't think you're going to see the torrid sales pace that we saw in the last six to nine months. It won't be that significant. But it will be a very, very interesting, continuing, slow but steady push, only with maybe a two- to three-month interruption because of this sequester. But again, by the third and certainly the fourth quarter of this year, automobile purchasing will be going up again. So, um, not, and not as dramatically, but it will be up. So you've got two, two horses there pulling. I think you're going to see by early 2014, and I think people will understand this by the fourth quarter of this year, you're going to see renewed interest in genetic biology or, 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 the, or the application, if you will, of genetic research and biology to enormous changes in the economy. Uh, it's starting to happen outside of San Diego, California right now. And as a result, um, we're beginning to form like a triangle down there, not unlike what Silicon Valley was for in- integrated circuits. We're now forming for human genetics and genomics and uh, genomic biology companies. So I'm looking for that. Last one, I want to say the state of California, which was a poster child for unbelievably bad economic conditions. I said in a couple of shows back, I think with the passage of Prop 30 and with the change in the rules relative to, to gerrymandering, with the change regarding the um, uh, need to only get a majority for its budget to get passed, California is going to continue to get stronger this year and stronger again next year. So California has definitely bottomed out. It's definitely coming back. And as a large chunk of the U.S. economy it represents, that will be a third horse that will help. Uh, I just oil, want to mention a couple of things. Oil? Just before I jump into oil, I want to mention um, – once a year over at Cal State University Channel Islands, which is right here in Ventura County, uh, we put on an annual breakfast with the senior economists from the Federal Reserve, uh, the San Francisco branch, a gentleman named Gary Zimmerman. Uh, their information is available on the Federal uh, Reserve website from San Francisco office. You can check that out. But uh, Gary's projections for the economy are fairly similar to the kinds of things we've been talking about here. We've seen, he pointed out, a rise in car sales, housing market beginning to improve. However, they're still not looking at inflation to be a factor for yet another two, possibly even three years down the road, uh, 2015, 2016. Uh, they look to be keeping rates uh, either at this almost non-existent level at the Fed, between zero and a quarter percentage point, or if they do rise, it would be very minimal. Um, and that what they're basically seeing is an economy that is steadily and slowly recovering and that all the steps that have happened since 2008 are, in fact, beginning to work and work reasonably well. And had we had a Congress a bit more active in getting stimulus programs through rather than going, as the Europeans have, back into austerity, we'd probably see that growth occurring even faster. Well, there's no question. I mean, we keep shooting ourselves in the feet. If we would get out of our way, I mean, if the Republican Congress would just cooperate a little bit, could we have a little infrastructure spending, please? Could we have a little sanity on eliminating things as silly as a sequester? Can we have a little bit of sanity on a decent budget? If we could, we would actually be at that 3% growth rate and higher that I'm predicting for the end of the year. And I think we're going to get there either way, with or without the congressional um, the Republicans getting reasonable, I think we'll get there even if they continue to resist, although I don't think the resistance will be as strong this year as it was last year for reasons of the internal struggle going on in the party. That well, said, one, one would hope that they would put the priority of the country ahead of the priority of the party. That is probably wishful thinking, but, but that is certainly my hope. And again, just to touch on oil, uh, before the election, as we mentioned, oil was trading at $85 a barrel. It's low point for the year. And at the pump it was roughly and again this varies by part of the country in, but it was roughly around three seventy five uh, a gallon at the pump. In the three months since the election, we have seen uh, roughly a twenty percent rise in the price of a barrel of oil. It was trading this morning around ninety eight dollars a barrel. And the price at the pump uh, also seen roughly a sixteen to twenty percent rise and it's selling around you know um, about 4.35 a gallon uh, for that same same gallon we bought back in November. Um, these are the kind of cyclical things we always talk about, 
And sure enough, the oil industry put out uh, press releases through a variety of different sources about a month ago saying, oh, yes, we expect the price of oil to go up because we're hitting home heating season, and then we have to start preparing for summer driving season by switching over. And there are some refineries that have to go off for maintenance and so on and so forth. This is the kind of um, press release we've gotten used to for now close to 40 years that justifies a rise, a seasonal rise, um, but only happens every two years um, away from the election cycle. Ronald, anything you want to add to that before we move on? No, and I, I think that uh, people know our opinion on oil. And, and look, the, 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 the degree of climate change crisis that's happening, we didn't touch on on this show, but obviously uh, that giant snowstorm that just blanketed the Northeast recently, uh, the tornadoes that hit uh, down in Alabama, Georgia, the, um, of course, Superstorm Sandy, all of these things are screaming to us that we must take a different approach to climate change. We cannot continue to put fuel on the fire of the planetary fever. Right. Now, and there was a recent survey that came out, Ronaldo, um, I just saw it come across the wire yesterday, that something like 66% of the American people want action on climate change, and they actually believe it's real. 60% of the entire, 66% of the entire population. Flip side, only 32% of Republicans believe climate change is real, even to this day when the evidence is right in front of us. Well, you know, it's, 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 as I say to people, there's, there's, no, there's no such thing as a climate change debate. It's sort of like saying you want to debate flat earth theory. If you think the earth is flat, there's nothing for me to debate because it's round. Oh, and, and if I you think climate change flat. isn't real, there's nothing I can debate because it is. And if you don't want to pay attention to the reality all around you, you could ostrich life, stick your head in the sand, but you'll get your tail feathers shot off. No question about it. Financially and otherwise, sooner rather than later. It's amazing to me. It's just it's astounding. But let's push on now to the balance of the show. Um, I think we've covered oil uh, and, and the bad decisions that it means if we don't convert from our fossil fuel system. We talked a little bit about that with um, Richard earlier. Um, Howard, where do you want to take the program now? Well, we, let's finish up on the State of the Union. We have about eight minutes left. Um, and uh, anything else you want to add relative to uh, what the president had to say? Yeah, I'm, I'd love to cycle back, and, and um, I'd like people to uh, take the context of this show which is take action. I think that um, most people believe that Obama's decision to convert his campaign organization into a permanent nonprofit movement to try and influence policy in Washington is probably a really good thing in terms of improving his chances of getting more cooperation from Congress. Now, I'm actually hopeful that as the Republican infighting continues, you'll see... Uh, Blue Dog Democrats will break and vote, for example, against certain things that other Democrats might be for. And I think you're going to see, if we get to vote, a significant number of Republicans will join mainstream Democrats in addressing some of the most serious questions we have in an adult and professional way. If they do not, they will hand the Democrats an unbelievable set of issues to run for. 2014, it could flip control of the House, and I think they know that. Right. Let and me let just, me also remind our viewers, that since we do talk so much about politics, that both Ronaldo and I are registered independents. We do not ascribe to the platform of either party uh, as individuals. Yeah, and, 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 and one more thing to that. Part. One more thing. In a, in a lifetime of being you know, active, a community activist as well as a working person, one of the things I have learned, and it goes back to our call to action that we're going to talk about in a moment. One of the things I've learned in all of these organizations is that nothing ever happens unless some individual stands up and says, this is what we need to do, and I'm going to lead the way. In most groups that I've been involved with, somebody always says, well, why don't they do something about this? Well, let me remind our view listeners, there is no they out there. It is only us, it is only you, and we are the only ones that can take action on any issue. So if you believe in something strongly enough, uh, the kinds of things we talk about on this show, it is incumbent upon you to take some form of positive action to see that it happens. Because, again, there is no they out there who's going to do it for you. 
Well, and I, thank you, Howard, and I, because that plays exactly into where I want to go with this next comment, which is, uh, we, so we had Richard on today because we wanted people to know, we did a lot of work before I found that organization, but when they formed up and I saw what they were doing, I said, okay, that's the way small businesses could help each other and help themselves. Um, and we desperately need to equalize the playing field, as you know, because the big guys run the game. But the other call to action I want to give people is, as I said at the earlier part of the show, we want you to do well financially to listening to this program. We want you to understand more. We want you to make better informed decisions for your own investment portfolio, for whatever your assets are. We don't want to see you get hurt in financial matters that we can predict if it all, again, do for you. We will. But most importantly, I want to start providing tools. So I wanted to make a little commercial announcement to every listener. The Academy is about to do something we've never done in 26 years. We have never up until now done a teleseminar to help people achieve higher levels of personal performance at whatever their occupation is. And we're going to be launching such a teleseminar um, in the next few months. I want you all to be watching for it. We'll send out an email. And the, the name of the, 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 the seminar is going to be Business as a Spiritual Discipline. In other words, what would happen if the way you look at your spiritual fulfillment was what you did in the world? What we're going to show or explain in that course is how you will not only have a more integrated sense of who you are and a happier sense of who you are, you are also going to do a financially wonderful thing for your pocketbook because you're, what you're going to learn is the skills that we can pass along that will provide you with even more in-depth tools than you get on the show to take advantage of all the same things that I do. So I'm going to be uh, joined in that show with some very interesting people. We'll have Deepak Chopra on it. We'll have Jack Canfield, uh, Chicken Soup, the book author and, and famous speaker. We'll have some other very interesting people who will join us in that show, and we'll actually have hands-on mastermind group training between telecasts just to make sure you can ground in your own local community exactly what we're talking about. So I'm looking forward to that launching. Please watch for our announcement. Uh, but we've been working on the content on those shows uh, for quite a while now, and we're almost ready to launch it. So keep 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 your eye on um, your email from us. Hopefully, you'll be one of the people that want to take a course that will not only improve your own financial well-being, but will give you an opportunity to harmonize in the world at a happier level with everything you do in your workplace and with your family. And I'd like to add to that. I think, one, it's going to be an excellent program. But I am a firm believer that you can take your beliefs and your practices, and even though, for example, I work in the heart of capitalism, it does not distract from how I relate to my clients, how I manage my practice, who I represent as clients as well. Um, these are all important factors that you can successfully bring to your workplace regardless of where you work and, and, and I'd what like your you to, job is. And I'd like to urge every listener, send us a note at info at worldbusiness.org if you'd like more information, because then we'll send you even more than just a short email. We're really reaching out to try and create a benefit here for our extensive audience, and I want to just end also by thanking those of you who brought your friends and your relatives on to listen to this show. Uh, our, our, our listening audience continues to grow. We're very excited that... Uh, we're, we're speaking to many, many thousands of people with each show. Please keep telling people. Share the good news. Even though you'll hear things on this program that are fairly negative, like a lot of the work we do in climate change, you'll also hear ways to deal with it. You'll also hear ways to profit by the, the those of us who are looking outward, not sticking our heads in the sand. Right. So and all of our programs are on the website. Uh, you simply go to uh, worldbusiness.org and look down. You'll see Blog Talk Radio link. Uh, with Ronaldo's picture, and go there, and you can download any of our past shows at any time for that content. Also and one of the reasons we store them there is because we want you to be able to go back and see what we said a year ago and see how it worked out in the real world. You'll be delighted when you do. I know that with great confidence. And what I do know from a lot of my client talks is we've been pretty much dead on for the past four years since the crash, and we've been running these programs and having a lot of these conversations uh, which actually started as a result of the crash uh, with some local business groups here in uh, Southern California. Yeah, and I, in part also because I gave that prediction on Deepak Chopra's show, the crash was coming and people heard it and asked, okay, what should we do? And then we started coming up with advice, and we've been doing it ever since. So thank you to our listeners. Please keep bringing more listeners to us. Tell your friends. Do them a favor. 
tell your family members, do them a favor, and um, let us know if you'd like to know more about how to integrate who you are with what you do in the workplace. Business is a spiritual discipline. Right. And our next show, reminder, will be uh, again in March, also on the 14th of the month, it's, which is the second Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Um, and look forward to hearing from you all in between and to being on the show with you again next month. With that, I'd like to thank you, Ronaldo, for being on the show and to thank Richard again for being our guest. And with that, let me bid you all a good day and a happy Valentine's Day. May you all share in the spirit of love today. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Elizabeth.